You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history, whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people. This podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Childhood, Boyhood, Youth by Leo Tolstoy Published from 1852 to 1856 Edited by Arthur Mee and J. A. Hammerton Childhood August 12th was the third day after my tenth birthday anniversary. Wonderful presents had been given me. My tutor, Carl Ivanich, roused me at seven by striking at a fly directly over my head with a flapper made of sugar paper fastened to a stick. He generally spoke in German, and in his kindly voice exclaimed, Get up, children. It is time. Your mother is already in the drawing-room. Lyotka Nikolai, the valet of us children, a neat little man, brought in the clothes for me and Volodya, who was imitating my sister's governess, Maria Ivanova, in mocking merry laughter. Somewhat sternly, presently, Karl Ivanich called from the schoolroom to know if we were nearly ready to begin our lessons. In the schoolroom, on one shelf was our promiscuous assortment of books, on another the still more miscellaneous collection which our dear old tutor was pleased to call his library. I remember that it included a German treatise on cabbage gardens, a history of the Seven Years' War, and a work on hydrostatic. Karl Ivanich spent all his spare time in reading his beloved books, but he never read anything beyond these and the northern bee. After early lessons, our tutor conducted us downstairs to greet Mama. She was sitting in the parlor, in front of the samovar, pouring out tea. To the left of the divan was the old English grand piano, on which my dark-complexioned sister, Lubachka, eleven years old, was painfully practicing Clementi's exercises. Near her, Maria Ivanova, with scowls on her face, was loudly counting and beating time with her foot. She frowned still more disagreeably at Karl as he entered, but he appeared to ignore this, and kissed my mother's hand with a German salutation. After mutually affectionate greetings, Mama told us to go to our father and ask him to come to her before he went to the threshing floor. We found Papa angrily discussing business affairs with Yakov Mikhailov the chief concern being apparently about money from Mama's estate at Karbarovka, her native village. A large sum was due to the council, and Yakov pleaded that it would be difficult to raise it from the sale of hay and the proceeds of the mill. For example, said he, the miller has been twice to ask me for delay, swearing by Christ the Lord that he has no money. What little cash he had, he put into the dam. Yakov was a serf, and was a most devoted and assiduous man excessively economical in managing his master's affairs, and constantly worried himself over the increase of his master's property, at the expense of that of his mistress. For some days we had been expecting something unusual, from preparations which we saw going on for some journey, but an announcement from Papa at length surprised us terribly. He greeted us one morning with the remark that it was time to put an end to our idleness, and that as he was going that evening to Moscow, we were to go with him and to live there with our grandmother, Mama remaining on the estate with the girls. My thoughts were mingled, for I was very grieved for the sake of Mama, yet I felt pleasure at the idea that we were grown up. 
For poor Karl Ivanitch, I was extremely sorry, as he would be discharged. On my way upstairs, I saw Papa's favorite greyhound, Milka, basking in the sunshine on the terrace, and ran out, kissed her on the nose, and caressed her, saying, Farewell, Milochka, we shall never see each other again. Then, altogether overcome with emotion, I burst into tears. My father was a chivalrous character of the last century, who regarded with contempt the people of the present century. His two chief passions were cards and women. He was tall and commanding, bald with small eyes ever twinking vivaciously, and a lisping utterance. He knew how to exercise a spell over people of every grade, and in the highest society he was held in great esteem. He seemed born to shine in his brilliant position, and was an expert in the management of all things that could conduce to comfort and pleasure. A lover of music, he sang to his own piano accompaniment operatic songs, but had no liking for Beethoven's sonatas and other scientific compositions. His principles grew more fixed as years rolled on. He judged actions as being good or bad accordingly, as they procured him happiness or pleasure or otherwise. He talked persuasively, and he could represent the same deed as either an innocent piece of playfulness or of abominable villainy. Happy days of childhood that can never be recalled. What memories I yet cherish of them. I see Mama just as plainly as when she so long since was talking to someone at the tea-table. Presently she stroked my hair with her soft hand, saying, Get up, my darling. It is time to go to bed. Get up, my angel. I spring up and embrace her and exclaim, Dear, dear Mama, how I love you. With her sad and fascinating smile, she places me on her knees, is silent a while, and then speaks. So, you love me very much. Love me always, and never forget me. If you lose your mamma, Nikolinka, you will not forget her. She kisses me still more lovingly, and I cry with tears of love and rapture flooding my face. Oh, do not say that, my darling, my precious one. Will that freshness, that happy carelessness, that thirst for love which made life's only requirements ever return? Where are those pure tears of tenderest emotion? The angel of consolation came and wiped them away. Do the memories alone abide? About a month after we had removed to Moscow, Grandmama received a visit from Princess Kornakova, a woman of forty-five, with disagreeable gray-green eyes, but sweetly curved lips, bright red hair, and insalubrious face. In spite of these peculiarities, her aspect was noble. I took a dislike to her because I found from her talk that she was given to beating her own children— and thought that other people's children, especially boys, needed to be whipped. Another visitor was Prince Ivan Ivanich, distinguished for his noble character, handsome person, splendid bravery, and extraordinary good fortune. He belonged to a powerful family, and lived in accordance with principles of the strictest religion and morality. Though somewhat reserved and haughty in demeanor, he was full of kindly feeling. Prince Ivan Ivanich was a highly cultured man, of most versatile accomplishments. Our grandmama was evidently delighted to see him, and his magnificent aspect and her liking for him inspired me with unbounded admiration and reverence. He asked why Mama had not come to Moscow. Ah, was the reply. She would have come if possible, but they have no income this year. I do not understand, replied the prince. Her Kabarovka is a wonderful estate, and it must always bring in a fine revenue. I will tell you, said Grandmama sadly. 
It seems to me that all the pretexts are made simply to enable him to live a gay life here, while she, angel of goodness that she is, suspects nothing. She believes him in everything. This conversation should not have been overheard by me, but, having overheard it, I crept out of the room. On the 16th of April, nearly six months later, serious news came from Mama. She wrote to Papa that she had contracted a chill which had caused a fever, that this was over but had left her in such utter weakness that she would never rise from her bed again, although those about her were not aware of such a condition. She wished him to come to her at once and to bring her two boys with him. She prayed that God's holy will might be done. On April 25th, we reached our Petrovska home. Papa had been very sad and thoughtful during the journey. We at once learned from the steward that Mama had not left her room for six days. I shall never forget what I saw when we entered Mama's room. She was unconscious. Her eyes were open, but she saw nothing. We were led away. Mama soon passed away. She was dead. The funeral obsequies took place, and then our life went on much as before. We rose, had our repasts, and retired to rest at the same hours. Three days after the funeral, the whole household removed to Moscow. Grandmama only learned what had happened when we arrived, and her grief was terrible. She lay unconscious for a week, and the doctor feared for her life, for she would not eat, speak, or take medicine. When she recovered somewhat, her first thought was of us children. She cried, spoke of Mama, and tenderly caressed us. Boyhood on our arrival in Moscow, a change had taken place in my views of things. My sentiment of reverence for Grandmama had changed to one of sympathy. As she covered my cheeks with kisses, I realized that each kiss expressed the thought, She's gone. I shall never see her more. Papa had very little to do with us in Moscow, coming to us only at dinner time, and lost much in my eyes, with his ostentatious dress, his stewards, his clerks, and his hunting and business expeditions. Between us and the girls, also, an invisible barrier seemed to rise. We were proud of our trousers and straps, and they of their petticoats, which increased in length. Their showier Sunday dress made it manifest that we were no longer in the country, but soon commenced a period of my life of which it is difficult to trace a record. Rarely during memories of it do I find moments of the genuine warmth of feeling which so frequently illumined the earliest years of my life. Vivid is the recollection of Vladya's entrance at the university. He was barely two years my senior in age. The day of his first examination arrived, and he presented a handsome appearance in his blue uniform with brass buttons and lacquered boots. The examination lasted ten days, and Vladya, having passed brilliantly, returned on the last day no longer in blue coat and gray cap, but in student uniform, with blue embroidered collar, three-cornered hat, and a gilt dagger by his side. Joy and excitement reigned in the whole household. For the first time since Mama's death, Grandmama drank champagne and weeps with joy as she looks at Vladya, who henceforth rode into his own equipage, receives friends in his own rooms, smokes tobacco, and goes to balls. But soon another incident happened which is engraven on memory. The dear old Grandmama was growing daily weaker, and one morning the announcement thrilled us that she was dead. Again the house was full of mourning. In a few months I should be preparing to enter the university. I was, by degrees, emerging from my boyish moods, with the exception of one, a tendency to metaphysical dreaminess, 
which was fated to do me much injury in after years. At this period, an intimacy commenced between me and a very remarkable man, Prince Dmitri Nekhludoff. He was a tall and commanding figure, with an extraordinary intellect. Whenever he found me alone, we seated ourselves in some secluded corner and found mutual delight in metaphysical discussions. With ecstasy in these moments, I soared higher and higher into the realms of thought. This strange friendship grew. We agreed to confess everything to each other, and thus we should really know each other and not be ashamed. But in order that we should not be in any fear of strangers, we vowed never to say anything to anybody else about each other. And we kept that vow. As may be imagined, the influence of my friend over me was greater than mine over him. I adopted his fervent ideas, which included lofty aspirations for the reformation of all mankind. Youth I was nearly sixteen, and from that time I date the beginning of youth. Under various professors I studied, though by no means willingly, to prepare for the university. At length, on April 16th, I went for the first time to the great hall of the university. For the first time in my life I wore a dress coat. The bright hall was filled with a brilliant crowd of hundreds of young men in gymnasium costumes and dress coats, stately professors moving freely about among the tables. On that day I was examined in history and answered questions in Russian history in brilliant style, for I knew the subject well. I received five marks. Similar success rewarded my efforts at the examination in mathematics, for the professor told me I had answered even better than was required, and on this occasion I received five points. Everything went splendidly until I came to the Latin examination. The Latin professor was spoken of in accents of terror, for he had the reputation of taking a fierce delight in plucking candidates. My success so far had made me feel proudly confident and as I could translate Cicero and Horace without the lexicon and was proficient in Zump's grammar, I thought I might equal the rest, but not so. The professor amicably passed one of my young acquaintances, although the youth was palpably deficient in his answers. I afterwards learned that he was the student's protector. When my turn came immediately afterwards, the professor turned on me in truly savage demeanor. "'That is not it! That is not it at all!' exclaimed he. This is not the way to prepare for higher education. You only want to wear the uniform and to boast of being first. The demeanor of this professor so affected me that my confusion was complete. I only received two marks, and the injustice so depressed me that I lost all ambition and allowed the remaining examinations to proceed without making any effort. I made up my mind that it was unwise to aim at being first, and I resolved to adhere to this sentiment in the university. My father married again. He was forty-eight when he took Avdotya Epifanova as his second wife. She was a beautiful woman, whom Mama used to call Dunichka, but I had suspected nothing until Papa actually announced to us that he was going to marry her. The wedding was to take place in a fortnight. I and Volodya returned to Moscow at the beginning of September, and on the following day I went to the university for my first lecture. It was a magnificent, sunny day, and as I entered the auditorium, I felt lost in the throng of gay youths flitting about through the doors and among even the corridors. Belonging to no particular group, I felt isolated and then even angry, and I remember in my heart that this first day was a dismal occasion for me. I looked at the professor with an ironical feeling, 
for he commenced his lecture with an introduction which, to my mind, was without sense. I decided at this first lecture that there was no need to write down everything that each professor said, and to this principle I adhered. Though during my course I made many pleasant acquaintances, and so felt less isolated than at first, I indulged in little real comradeship. But during the winter my attention was much engrossed with affairs of the heart, for I was in love three times. Yet I was overwhelmed with shyness, fearing that my love should be discovered by its object. With two of the young ladies, indeed, I had already been in love previously. Of one of them I was now enamored for the third time, but I knew that Veladya also regarded her with passionate ecstasy. I felt that it would certainly not be agreeable to him to learn that two brothers were in love with the same young woman. Therefore, I said nothing to him of my love. But great satisfaction was afforded to my mind by the fact that our love was so pure, and that each would be ready, if needful, to make a sacrifice for the sake of the other. But that self-abnegation did not, after all, extend to Vladya, for when he heard that a certain diplomat was to marry the girl, he was disposed to slap his face and challenge him to a duel. It happened that I had only spoken once to the young lady, and my love passed away in a week, as I made no effort to perpetuate it. During that winter I was quite disenchanted with the social pleasures to which I had looked forward when I entered the university, in imitation of my brother Volodya. He danced a great deal, and Papa also went with his young wife to balls, but at the first one which I attended I was so shy that I declined the invitation of the Princess Kornakova to dance, declaring that I did not dance, though I had come to her evening party with the express intention of dancing a great deal. I remained silently in one place the whole evening. Avdotya's passionate love for Papa was evident in every word, look, and action. We were always hypocritically polite to her, called her chère maman, and noticed that at first she was fond of calling herself stepmother, and that she plainly felt the unpleasantness of her position. Her disposition was very amiable, and she was in no way exacting. My first examination at length arrived. It was on differential and integral calculus. I was indifferent and abstracted, but a feeling of some dread passed over me when the same young professor who had questioned me at the entrance examination looked me in the face. I answered so badly that he looked at me compassionately and said quietly but firmly that as I should not pass in the second class I had better not present myself for examination. I went home and remained weeping in my room for three days over my failure. I even looked out my pistols, in order that they might be at hand if I should feel a wish to shoot myself. Finally, I saw my father and begged him to permit me to enter the Hussars or go to the Caucasus. He sought to comfort me by saying that it was not so very bad that arrangements might be made for a different course of study. After a few days I became composed, but did not leave the house till we departed for the country. I may some day relate the sequel and the happier half of my youth.